Amen. Amen. Thank you to our choir and especially to Cheryl Sparing again, stepping in. So can we just thank them for leading us in worship? So and thank the Lord for that opportunity. So, I said at the end, towards the end of the sermon last week that, I, you know, I, I regret the fact that my daughter um, is growing up without hearing the old hymns. Be careful what you say in this sermon, because the Lord will hold you to it in a good way. All right, Romans 15, 22 to 33. Romans 15, 22 to 33. We're coming near to the end of the book of Romans. There are 16 chapters. The plan is to be in Romans for about two more Sundays. Lord willing, anything could happen. And then we'll have finished, well, I think it's been over a year uh, here in Romans together. But the calling in this section, really this is Paul's travel plan. So we've come to near the end where he's explaining to the Roman Christians his plans for continuing his mission. And in that you might say, well, how does that apply to us here today? Actually, you'll find, I think it's actually extremely applicable because when we see what his intention and ambition is and what he calls the church to do because of his ongoing missions, it is extremely applicable that we are called to be a missions-minded church. And we're called to be missions-minded Christians. Actually, this, they say, statistically speaking, is the major game-changer for churches. Basically, if you had to look at one factor for a church to see whether the church is thriving and growing or whittling and dying, it would probably be this issue. Is a church outward-focused, missions-minded, or has it grown to become inward-focused? And what happens to churches sometimes, and you see this, is that over time, uh, the people who are part of that church only get concerned with making sure the people who are part of that church are happy and kind of shut the outside world out a bit, and that church is usually on its way out unless something major happens. Whereas churches that are looking to impact the community... Obviously, you also want church health and you want people who are in the church to be well ministered to, but are also looking outward to the community and to the ends of the earth and bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth tend to be thriving and growing. That's because it's biblical. It's what we're called to do right here in Scripture, Romans 15, 22 to 33. We will not have it on the screen, but there, will be, there should be a Bible in the pew, in the back of the pew in front of you. We read this. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, 
to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord, and may God add his blessing to the proclamation and the receiving and application of his word this morning. Uh, I know you don't have it on the screen, but here's where we're going, that Christians are called to be missions-minded. 22 to 24, missions-minded means a global Christian perspective, a global Christian perspective. 25 to 29, missions-minded means making generosity a part of your life, talking about the offering to the saints in Jerusalem. And then 33 to 30, 30 to 33, the final section, missions-minded means taking prayer very seriously. So the first thing here is 22 to 24, a global Christian perspective. As Paul lays before these Roman Christians his travel plans, notice how he starts. This is the reason why I have been hindered from coming to you. What's the reason? You've got to look at the previous section. Those who were here last week, you may remember Paul said, I don't want to build on another's foundation. His ambition, his calling from God is to basically bring Christ to a place where Jesus' name is not yet known. Frontier missions. Uh, to go where Christ has never been heard. Once there is a Christian witness in that area, a foundation has been laid. And once the foundation is laid, Paul says, it's now someone else to go and build on that foundation. I'm moving on to the next region. So he says, that's why I haven't come to Rome. The gospel's already come to Rome. I'm in an area in Asia Minor here where there are plenty of places where Christ was not yet known. However, things have changed. Verse 23. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions... Now, his point is not that, of course, every individual uh, has now become a Christian in that area. Not even close. Probably not even 5%. His point is that there are now good churches established throughout this Asia Minor area, and it's time for me to move on. My calling, go establish new churches. Other people continue to build on that foundation. I said this last week, but my calling, I believe, is to build on another's foundation. Um, the pilgrims and Puritans who came here, Hezekiah Smith who founded this church, um, at least until God moves me on, I have no problem with that. That's my calling. Others are called to the frontier mission field and to bring the gospel where it is yet to be known. So since he's done with that area, it's time to move on to somewhere else. And he says, also, because I have longed to go to Rome. Again, not to go to Rome to see all the beautiful architecture and the history but to spend time with the Roman Christians. Paul didn't, didn't establish the church in Rome. He's never visited the church in Rome yet, but he's longed to do it for many years and spend time with them. But he wants to do it as part of a larger plan. Look at verse 24. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. So Paul's desire is to go to the furthest part of the western hemisphere of, or the western um, portion of uh, the Roman Empire. Spain in that day would be a reference to both Portugal and Spain, what was called the Iberian Peninsula, um, yet to be reached for the gospel, and he wants to be helped along on his journey by the Romans. So stop over in Rome, spend a little bit of time there, enjoy their fellowship, and then they will help him as he continues westward in his mission. Actually, the word used there for helped along in his journey is kind of a technical word, uh, the sort of definitive Greek New Testament 
Dictionary describes that word as this. Help on one's journey with food, money, by arranging for companions, means of travel, etc. So the point is not just I'm going to stop over there and have you guys pray over me real quick, but you're going to be the sending church in a sense that gets me to Spain to continue to reach Spain now with the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Now, a few things. Did Paul ever get to Spain? And uh, here's the thing. We don't know for sure. Um, We might even ask the question, did Paul ever get to Rome? And the answer is yes, but not as he expected. (laughs) He got to Rome in chains. You can read about this in the book of Acts. He goes to Jerusalem. We'll talk about that in just a bit. There he's arrested. He is sent to the Romans, and he eventually gets to Rome in chains. We do know that Paul was killed, at least according to church history, by the Romans at some point. Maybe not the same exact arrest. So it is possible he gets out of his arrest and then eventually does get to Spain um, and fulfills what he's saying here. But I would say probably unlikely. But for those who say, no, I want to believe that he got to Spain, um, you would have some church history on your side. Clement said that Paul had reached the farthest bounds of the West. And Clement is pretty reliable. The farthest bounds of the West would be a reference to the Iberian Peninsula or to Spain. And Clement is backed up by a couple documents, the Acts of Peter, not written by the Apostle Peter, and the Muratorian Fragment. So it's possible, especially for you Latinos and you who wish that, that Paul made it to Spain. He might have. We don't know for sure. What we can say is that his intention was to bring the gospel to Spain and reach places yet to be reached. So if you say, Pastor Rick, this is in the Bible. It has to be that he made it to Spain. Uh, That's not how the Bible works. (laughs) But Paul is writing a letter, and he's expressing his intentions. He is not prophesying of what is definitely to come. In fact, it's more important to know his intentions. The reason why he wants to get to Spain is because Spain has never heard the gospel. If Spain had already heard the gospel, he would say... To you Spaniards, Christians, send me on my way to Germany. Send me on my way to Britain. Send me on my way to Gaul. So the point is not that what he is saying will come to pass. The point is his intention is always to bring the gospel to new places yet to be reached. He has a global perspective of the Christian faith. And so important for us as Christians to have a global perspective. Ethnocentrism has no place among Christianity. When we think of the Christian faith, think of its diversity, its beauty, all of these cultures coming together around the world. And I would just say, for those here who are younger in particular, travel. (laughs) If you get a chance to travel, travel around the world and visit Christian churches around the world and see how they worship and experience the way God is at working, especially short-term mission trips. Strongly encourage everyone, if you're able to go, I know not everyone is able to go, you might be saying, Honestly, Pastor Rick, I'm at a place in life, I don't think I can travel to China or India or something like that. I get it. So it's not for everyone necessarily, but if you can go, go. But the good news is, God is bringing the nations here. So uh, very different than most parts of the world, we are, of course, a rainbow of cultures here in the United States. And what a blessing that is then to see the diversity of the kingdom right here. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. once said, that Sunday at 11 o'clock a.m. is the most segregated hour of the week. And he did not say that with pride. Rightfully pointing out there's something wrong 
with the fact that we get into our little ethnic or racial camps on Sunday morning. The picture of Christianity is every tongue and tribe and nation represented in our worship and glory. And that may mean making certain sacrifices. We don't always get what we want, right? We don't always get the style of worship we want or whatever. Being willing to say, how do we be united even among our differences as Christians? But also, how do we continue to reach those places yet to be reached? That's kind of his main point. Global Christianity says there are still cultures, there are still people groups on this planet who don't know Jesus. And we need them to hear the good news about Christ. And you might say, ah, there can't be that many of them, right? With the internet and with uh, how many people, you know, hear television and so forth. We got to be pretty much done reaching the world. Sorry, we're not that close, actually. There are, according to the Joshua Project, which is a great missionary organization that kind of tracks these very things. And you may have heard these numbers before, but it's a good reminder. 17,428 people groups. How do you define a people group? Probably has to do with language, religion, and sort of unique cultural practices. The people group might be multiple millions. It might be 10,000. Depends on the uniqueness of that group. 17,428. Out of that group, unreached, which means there is no viable gospel witness, no Christian church that exists among them. There are 7,417 unreached groups. Which means that 42.6% of the world is yet to be reached. And you say, well, I mean, those could be really small groups. Well, if we look at this in terms of population, the world has 7.93 billion people. And 3.37 billion people are yet to be reached. Which is 42.5, basically the same thing. There's a lot of work to be done. And what did Jesus say when the gospel reaches the ends of the earth, where there are some represented from every tribe under heaven, then the end will come. And so we have work to do. We have a job to do. And that is part of having a global perspective of seeing all the nations come to know Jesus and worship him. I remember hearing this neat story from a missionary. So they were trying to reach this relatively uh, foreign, you know, this, this very different tribe. Um, that uh, didn't have bread. So they didn't have grain that they crushed into flour that they made bread with. So they're translating the New Testament into their language, and they come to the passage where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. How do you translate, I am the bread of life, into a culture that doesn't have bread, right? Um, What they did have were yams. (laughs) So uh, yams were their staple diet. They cooked and ate yams as if it was their bread. And so the missionaries made a decision that Jesus said, I am the yam of life, right? That's what he said, really. So uh, they brought to them the, the truth of the message. He's our daily sustenance. He's our spiritual sustenance as Christians. A global picture of the gospel reaching the ends of the earth. That's going to take some resources. It's going to take some giving. Look at this next section, 25 to 29. He says here, at present, however, I'm going to take a little detour. Uh, I need to go to Jerusalem, which is about 2,000 miles out of the way. (laughs) It's actually going the other direction from where he's supposed to go. But he says, I have a little stopover to make uh, before I can get to Rome and eventually get to Spain. I need to go to uh, Jerusalem to bring aid to the saints. Actually, you can read about this throughout the New Testament. Paul is doing this major fundraising campaign, essentially, to raise money from the Gentile churches for the poor in the poor saints, the poor Christians in Jerusalem. 
Uh, a famine had hit Jerusalem around this time, and there was a lot of poverty, a lot of hunger, a lot of problems there in Jerusalem. And Paul says, verse 26, the Macedonians, the Achaeans, have been pleased to make some contribution. Isn't that interesting? They didn't have to force their hand. They didn't have to twist their arm. They didn't have to threaten them. They were excited to say, yes, absolutely, I want to be part of bringing this gift to help our brothers and sisters there in Jerusalem. 27, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed, they owe it to them. This kind of brings us back to Romans 9 through 11. The gospel came to Israel, and we, well, those here who are Gentile Christians, I should say, so not all of us are, you were grafted in to the root. But don't ever boast about the root as if you're now better than the natural branches who were broken off. Because, as the Bible says, you could be broken off just the same and the natural branches put right back in it. You are receiving a spiritual benefit that comes from the Lord, but through Israel and from the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, who is also the Savior of the world. He continues, For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, that's what he's talking about, theirs is the patriarchs, the covenants, and so forth, the Messiah, they had also to be of service to them in material blessings. Jerusalem's in need right now. It's time to help them out. It's time to step up and to give and give generously to them. Um, I told Mitch that uh, this is a great verse to support chosen people ministries, right? For you Gentile Christians, you've received the spiritual blessings. Now make sure you give generously to Jewish missions because we want to give back to the material blessings uh, that, uh, since we've received so well. 28, when therefore I have completed this and have, del- been, have delivered to them what has been collected, I'll leave for Spain by way of you. But Paul is eager and excited to come to Rome. Verse 29, I know that when I come to you, I'll come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. It's going to be a great time of fellowship, seeing you in person, enjoying your company, and then being sent off to Spain for you. Before we move on to prayer, though, let's talk a little bit about giving. Uh, giving is a way of life for Christians. By the way, we see this all over the Bible. The reason why giving is so important in this particular case is because you can see here that Paul wants to bring together the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. There's a lot of division. There's a lot of sense of, you know, who's the real church, who's the real Israel, and so forth. There's a, we already saw that even in the church in Rome itself, big debates over the Sabbath day, um, big debates over food laws and the kosher food laws. And Paul, this is one way to say to the Jerusalem Christians, we're together, we're one, by generously helping them in their time of need. You know, one of the main, one of the questions really is to, to are you willing to put your, your money where your mouth is, right? Are you, are you just saying, I'll pray for you, I hope you do well? Or are you willing to actually give and make a sacrifice to see that they're helped? We see this right from the beginning. Uh, Abel was generous. Abel, as in the first, the first son, well, one of, the, one of the first children, who gave the first fruits of his flock to the Lord. And Cain gave of his grain offering. Now, the point was not whether it's a grain offering or whether a sacrifice or a lamb offering. That's not the issue. Both are accepted in the Bible. The point is that Abel was willing to give of the first fruits to the Lord, his best. And Cain, probably sort of his leftovers, <laughs> what he had left at the end of the day. And Abel's offering is pleasing to the Lord. And because of that, Cain gets jealous. And you know the story. Abraham, the great patriarch Abraham, 
was not only very generous to Lot, his nephew, but tithed. He tithed to Melchizedek. For you guys who know the story, maybe not everyone knows the story here, but Melchizedek comes out of nowhere, not a Jewish, not a, not a Semite, and, uh, and yet he's a priest of God Most High, ends up being a type, a foreshadowing of Christ himself. And all we know about him in Genesis is that Abraham himself goes in tithes to him. So that's what we know. He's generously giving. All throughout Israel, they're called to tithe and as a minimum and continue to give generously. And then we come to Jesus and things don't get lower, they get higher, right? So uh, I've heard you know, Christians say, Jesus did away with the tithing rules. If that's true, if that's true, he didn't make them lower, okay? If, if anything, he made the standard all the more higher to be generous. Uh, he looked at the, the rich young ruler and said, sell it all, give it to the poor, then come follow me. He said to the widow who was offering, she gave two coins, all that she had to live on. So if you're going to go that direction, understand the 10% doesn't go down, it goes up. Okay, just so you know there. Um, but generosity becomes a way of life. And then we see throughout the New Testament, this calling to this offering. Paul acts as a tent maker so as not to charge the church anything and to continue to see the gospel move forward. All right. Now, again, this is an in-house conversation. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, we don't actually want you to give anything, right? We just, that's not the point. We're not, we don't want you to see this as in any way a works thing. But for Christians, it becomes a way of life. I encourage you to tithe. Now, if you lost your job, whatever, okay, we get it. There's no, this is not a, that's not a rule. It's not a, a legalistic standard. It's a biblical principle. And the biblical principle is to give regularly to the work of the kingdom. Yes, God could choose a different method, right? Could have had the church in Jerusalem find some big gold mine and that funds the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's not his plan. His plan is for his people to continue to give generously to see the gospel reach the ends of the earth because it does something in us that we need. If you say, how much am I really supposed to give? If you, say, I don't, you don't like the tithe thing? I like what C.S. Lewis said. Lewis said famously, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. We always say, well, give what you can spare. Give more than you can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. It should hurt. It should be a little bit of a sacrifice. It should be, I don't get that Starbucks coffee this week that I really want. I don't get to go to dinner this week. I'm willing to make a sacrifice to serve and give generously. And then I would encourage you, above and beyond your tithe, to support ministries and missions and charities. By the way, I know some people say, I only give to Christian ministries. I think that's a mistake. I, I, I think we need to know, we need to let the world know that we are generous to all who are in need. Not we just take care of our own, but we are willing and always ready to give and to give generously. And we have a generous church. And I want to thank you for that. And as you continue to give and give generally, generously to the work of our church here um, and to missions around the world, we get to celebrate a long history of reaching the nations through generous giving. Uh, this church gave to Adoniram Judson. Adoniram Judson was the first missionary. Talked about Charlotte White being the first female missionary. The first missionary in the modern missions movement was Adoniram Judson. If you don't know the story, I'll just tell it real quick. He was a Congregationalist, as most New Englanders were. 
um, sent by our wonderful brothers and sisters at First Church of Christ Bradford, by the way, um, and among other churches. He gets on the boat ride, and this long, arduous boat ride to Burma. He starts reading the Bible and realizes he's a Baptist. <laughs> he, believes, he believes that infant baptism is, isn't correct, that you're supposed to get baptized as a believing adult, and so he has to, in all honesty, write his churches and say, by the way, I'm here, I've arrived safely, but I'm now a Baptist. And all the congregational churches said, then you no longer get our support, and they all dropped him. Um, that was just the way things were done. So, what happened? Baptist churches took up the slack. Among them was First Baptist Church of Haverhill. Neat history, right? And of course, we support um, many missionaries throughout the ages. God's mission to reach the ends of the earth is through the faithful and generous contribution of his people. That's not the whole picture. We need to pray. Notice the emphasis on prayer, 30 to 33. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. All right, you can't get any more higher than that, right? That's two-thirds of the Trinity, okay? say, where's the last third? We'll get to that in a second. I appeal to you by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit of God to do what? To strive together with me in your prayers. The ESV expository commentary writes this. Strive together refers to the hard work and intentionality that goes into concerted prayer, sustained over weeks and months. He's not saying, just make sure you say a quick prayer before you go to bed. (laughs) Strive in concerted prayer for me. This is what this mission, this life is all about until Christ returns. That we are getting the gospel to Spain and then onward to the rest of the world. Pray and pray seriously about this. In fact, he gives them very specific prayer requests. Let's look at those. Pray uh, and strive together in your prayers to God. There's, by the way, the third part of the Trinity. Pray by the, by the Holy Spirit, uh, through Jesus Christ, to God the Father. 31, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. Pray for my protection. Uh, not his, only for Paul's sake, but for the sake of the mission. And that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable. That they, Jerusalem Christians would accept this gift that they would take it for what it is, a, an act of unity, an act of saying that we are together helping and encouraging one another. And then thirdly, verse 32, so that I will be able to come to you and be refreshed in your company. Now this is a great test case for prayer. Why? Because look at, let's see how these were answered. He said that the Lord would protect him from the unbelievers in Judea. Was that answered? Yes and No. Uh, Paul didn't get killed in Judea, so yes, he stayed alive. But he was arrested and put in chains. Ultimately, our prayers are laid before God and we trust him in his perfect will. What about the second one, that this gift would be acceptable to the saints in Jerusalem? Most likely it was. They took the gift and were able to use it. And ultimately, yes, I think there was a spiritual unity. But at least immediately, it didn't get answered very well. Again, the church in Jerusalem is an uproar right there. And they're the ones who hand him over to, ultimately, to the Romans. And thirdly, that he gets to Rome and, and is refreshed. Well, 
If you count his imprisonment in Rome, chained to a Roman soldier, he gets there. Not sure how refreshing that was. (laughs) Prayer is not a cosmic candy machine where you put in your four quarters and you get to pick whatever you want and God has to answer it the way you asked it. That's not how prayer works. Prayer is our petition before a loving Father who is also the Sovereign Lord. And things are not guaranteed to go our way. We're guaranteed that God hears our prayers. We're guaranteed that God will work all things together for our good. But not that everything turns out exactly as we had hoped for. Sometimes it does. But this was not a failure. They prayed and God's will was done. He ends by praying for them. Verse 33. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Friends, we need to take prayer seriously as a church. Thanking God for all that he has provided. There's something about counting your blessings, right? Taking the time to consider carefully how God has answered prayer and celebrating those answers to prayer. Confessing our sin, not because we gain forgiveness by confession, but just like recognizing your sin before a loved one sort of puts it out in the open and brings about sort of clarity. So we do the same on a daily basis. Confess your sins to the Lord. Recognize Christ's sacrifice as a sufficient payment for that sin. Worship or adoration, spending time just praising God for who he is. And yes, supplication, which is called asking, petitioning for God for things. I had one Christian friend one time who said, I don't like to petition, I don't like to ask God for anything because I feel like he's given me enough already. The problem with that is God tells us all over the Bible to ask him for things. He wants us to show our dependence upon him. We need things. We have a dependence upon him. By asking God for things, we are showing our dependence upon him. And God tends to bless that. God has been so gracious to us as a church to hear and answer prayer. Let's continue to ask God. As James, the book of James says, you do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you ask with wrong motives that you may spend it on your pleasures. So let's ask and ask with right motives for the glory of God and ultimately trusting his perfect will. Christians are called to be missions-minded. That means having a global perspective, a global Christian perspective, a united church around the world, every tongue and tribe and nation worshiping him in glory. It means making generosity a way of life for us. That we, we don't just give once and then sort of get that duty out of the way. We are glad, as the, um, as the Kayans were here as well, to give and to give generously. It means making prayer seriously, taking prayer seriously, praying for our missionaries, for their safety, praying for their effectiveness on the mission field, praying for their fellowship and refreshment, as we read, and praying for a spirit of unity among Christians. As I started off by saying, perhaps the the key marker for a church is, is the church missions-minded? Now, we're doing pretty well because we're 250-something years old, (laughs) and uh, hopefully we're not allowing our church to become all focused inward. Instead, we want to do evangelism. We want to reach out to our community. We want to serve the needs right here in our city, but also tell people the good news. Clearly, bravely, and lovingly that we're all sinners, 
but God has provided a means of salvation in his son, Jesus Christ. And that repentance and faith in him is how we get saved and have the promise of eternal life. Tell people that message and continue to send and support missions around the world that places yet to be reached for Jesus would hear the name of Christ. When we do that, we thrive. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, thank you for the encouragement of the word this morning. How firm a foundation for us in Christ that we have in the word. Help us, Lord, to be missions-minded, individually as Christians, to keep our, our eyes on the global work of God around the world and the spiritual unity that you call us to, to live lives of generosity. Let us just be part of our life and to pray. Take prayer seriously and trust that you hear and that you answer us. In all this, Lord, we know that you lead us by your Spirit and his very presence with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand? And we're going to sing our final and closing hymn, He Leadeth Me.